Our next section of Psalm 119 begins at verse 137. It's the Hebrew letter Tzadi. It begins, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very faithful. The psalmist understood that the righteous character of God was displayed in his word. That is the phrase there, upright are your judgments. Judgments there is used as just an expression describing the word of God. In this, the word of God is an accurate revelation of God. It shows us not only the thoughts of God, which would be marvelous just by itself, but it also shows us the very character of God. Now, we might say that God's written word is an incomplete display of his character and nature. That is, there's more to God than what we can receive from his word. And that is true. Sometimes you'll hear people say this phrase, and sometimes I agree with it, and sometimes I don't agree with it, depending on the tone in which they mean it. But sometimes they'll say this, God is greater than his word. Well, I would agree with that. There is more to the nature and the character of God than is revealed to us by his word. But this is what we do know, that what we do have in his word is an accurate display of who God is, and it properly shows us who he is. You see, we might say it this way, that the God who really exists in heaven is not different than his written revelation to us. Now, he's greater than what can be comprehended through his written word, but it is not different than what he has revealed to us in the Bible. So he says it very plainly there. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very faithful. So for emphasis, the psalmist repeats this idea from the previous verse. The written word of God reflects both his righteous character and the fact that he is very faithful. God's words are especially helpful for establishing the fact that he is very faithful. You know, we often judge a person's faithfulness by seeing if their words and their actions match. Isn't that a legitimate way to see if a person is trustworthy? Do their words and their actions correspond? Well, along with other believers through the centuries, the psalmist could say this, that the words of God and the actions of God both were and are consistent, and they show him to be very faithful. Therefore, he says very logically in verse 139, My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. He says, My zeal has consumed me. Because your enemies or my enemies have forgotten your words. The more that the enemies of the psalmist rejected the word of God, the more determined he was to be zealous for those words. 
You see, he would make sure that the word of God is honored even if nobody else honored it. I like that term, zeal, right, in 139. Zeal implies energy and action. The the appreciation that the psalmist had for the word of God, it wasn't passive. It wasn't just an intellectual attraction. No, the living and active word of God brought forth a living and active response from the psalmist. And so he was very much eaten up with zeal, and his zeal was given over to God and his word. You know, you could say that every man, that every woman is eaten up with some kind of zeal. You're zealous for something. I know what you're saying. You're saying, listen, I know some people and they're not zealous for anything. They're just lazy. Well, aren't they zealous for laziness? Don't they pursue it with the whole person just as much as anybody else would pursue their hobby or their passion or something like this? Listen, I think it's fine for you to have hobbies and passions and things that you're very interested in. But should not the word of God be one of the things that you're zealous for? Because God will meet you in his word. I like what a man named Greenham wrote. Again, cited in Charles Spurgeon's great work on the Psalms. He says this. Thus we see that every man is eaten up with some kind of zeal. The drunkard is consumed with his drunkenness. The whoremonger is spent with his whoredom. The heretic is eaten with heresies. Oh, how this ought to make us ashamed who are so little eaten, spent, and consumed with the zeal of the word. Oh, what a benefit it is to be eaten up with the love and the zeal of a good thing. Now, this particular passage brings to my mind the the disciples when Jesus cleansed the temple and the court of the merchants and the money changers at the beginning of his ministry. At that time, the the disciples remembered the line from Psalm 69, which is very similar to this line. But in Psalm 69, it says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And this carries much the same thought here in Psalm 119. The idea that Jesus himself had this kind of zeal when he cleared the temple courts. They had forgotten his words and therefore Jesus had great zeal for the word of God. But then he says something else. And did you notice it in verse 140? It's a precious line. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. You see, the psalmist understood and appreciated the purity of God's word. In the original autographed writings, God's word is perfectly pure. Do you know what I mean? Understand what I mean by the original autographed copies? When the Apostle Paul dictated a letter to the, the scribe who wrote it down, that copy right there, we believe it to be perfectly inspired. Now, it was absolutely inspired in every word and every letter by God. And what we have are extremely reliable copies. You could say pure of the original, pure, perfectly pure copies. And so this is pure, tried in the furnace. You could talk about it in that way, either with the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament or the Greek scriptures of the New Testament. For the Hebrew scriptures, the quality of the text 
was preserved by the most diligent practices of professional scribes. According to some researchers, such as Josh McDowell in his old classic work, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, the, the ancient scribes practiced the following things in preparation and copying a manuscript. First of all, they would prepare the parchment. And the parchment was made only from the skins of kosher animals. And it had to be prepared only by a Jewish person. And the, str- the skins were fastened together by strings taken from other kosher animals. Each column on the parchment had to have no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. The entire copy or page, so to speak, it's parchment, not exactly paper. It had to be first lined with lines before writing could begin. And then they used ink. The ink had to be special, no other color than black, and it had to be prepared according to a special recipe. And no word or no letter that the scribe wrote when he was copying one of the scriptures, no word or no letter could be written from memory. The scribe had to have an authentic, approved copy right in front of him, and he had to read and pronounce every word before he wrote it into the new copy. And he had to reverently wipe his pen every time before he wrote the word for God, that is Elohim. And he had to wash ceremonially his whole body before he wrote the word that was put in the place of the word Jehovah, that is Lord in the New King James Version, so that he would not contaminate the holy name of the Lord. Very strict rules were given according to the forms of the letters, the spaces between the letters, the words and the sections and the use of the pen and the color of the parchment and so forth and so on. If a scroll had to be revised, it had to be done within 30 days of the time that the scroll was finished. Otherwise, it was worthless. And one mistake on a sheet condemned the entire sheet. If three mistakes were found in a larger section, the entire manuscript was condemned. Every word and every letter was counted, and if a letter was omitted, or if an extra letter was inserted, or if any letter touched another letter, the manuscript was condemned and destroyed. Now, with this sort of diligent care over the Hebrew manuscripts, is it any wonder that the word was pure, that it was reliably copied? And the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the mid-20th century proved beyond any doubt the quality and the purity and the skill of these scribes who copied the manuscripts from centuries to centuries. And so regarding the Greek scriptures, there's a similar astonishing rate of accuracy. Because of the vast quality and quantity of ancient Greek manuscripts and the existence of early and and, uh, uh, relatively early copies, I should say, scholars often say that the error rate of the Greek New Testament is somewhere between one half of one percent and two percent. That's the actual error rate. Indeed, you could say this. Your word is very pure and your servant loves it. It's true both of the original autograph copies and also of the reliable copies, extremely reliable copies that we have today of the Hebrew and Greek scriptures. And therefore he says, we love it. We love your word, Lord. And there's no reason why we shouldn't love the word of God. Just go through the scriptures themselves and see how it's described. 
Genesis chapter 15 calls it the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 8 calls it the word of God. Matthew chapter 13 calls it the word of the kingdom. Acts chapter 13 calls it the word of salvation. Acts chapter 14 calls it the word of grace. Acts chapter 15 calls it the word of the gospel. Romans chapter 10 calls it the word of faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 calls it the word of the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 calls it the word of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 calls it the word of truth. It's the word of life, according to Philippians 2. It's the word of Christ, according to Colossians 3. And it's the word of his power, according to Hebrews 1. What's not to love? Therefore, he says, your word is pure. Therefore, I love it. Now, look at how he goes on now to verse 141 and see the contrast. He says, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. The psalmist felt that he was insignificant, both in his own estimation, he said, I'm small, and in the estimation of other people, he said that he was despised. Yet he found comfort and strength in remembering the word of God. You know, we think of other people in the Bible who have been small and despised, right? Wasn't David as a little boy, small and despised, yet God used him greatly. Or we think of older men like Paul. He was all small and despised, and people didn't like him. Yet they found courage in God, and they understood God by his word. Now, it also shows us this. That the psalmist would not neglect the word of God when he felt small and despised, when he was depressed or downcast. Can I just tell you this? Small and despised does not feel good, right? Anybody feel good about small and despised? Yet he still remembered the word of God when he felt that way. Isn't it very interesting? When we feel small and despised, where we feel depressed and discouraged, don't we have this strange habit of running away from the medicine that will often help us, and that is the Word of God? Isn't that strange? What sort of a perverse twist of human nature that is? But the psalmist wouldn't do that. When he felt so long and despised, he said, verse 141, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. The psalmist confidently stated the everlasting character of God's righteousness. He is righteous and he will not change. And connected to that, that unchanging God has given us a word that is your law that is truth. And that's the glory, that's the joy of God's people. Your righteousness will not change and your law is truth. Do you remember that conversation between Jesus and Pontius Pilate? Jesus said this to Pilate. He said, for this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate's cynical reply was, what is truth? You know, for Pontius Pilate, uh, soldiers and armies were truth. Caesar was truth. Political power was truth. Yet Jesus knew what truth was while Pilate was still seeking. And the psalmist knew it. The psalmist knew what Jesus knew. Your law is truth. And this is especially relevant in a day 
when relativism has a strong hold in the everyday thinking of people. You know how people think that truth is a relative thing. And this idea of relativism has a very strong hold in the everyday thinking of common people today. It's very common for people today to think that there's no such thing as real truth. That's the common mentality of our age. There's no such thing as real truth. There's your truth, and there's my truth, and then there's the other person's truth. But listen, Western society used to believe that truth was that which corresponded to reality. In other words, what's really there. And now, truth is often held to be anything that is helpful to me or makes sense to me personally. In other words, it used to be this kind of thinking. How about this? Are you ready for this? Two plus two equals four. That's true, just because it is. That's the way that the Western world used to think. Today, it's more like this. Well, you know what? If it makes you feel good to say that two plus two equals five, then go ahead and say it. I mean, if it's good for you, then fine. Then that's good. Then, then that's your truth. Your truth is two plus two equals five. Or a majority of people today say two plus two equals three and a half. Therefore, well, then it must be, right? If that's what the crowd says. Again, anchored away from that idea of truth corresponding to reality. The late Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer used to promote the idea of what he called true truth. He said, it's almost meaningless to talk about truth anymore. Now we got to talk about true truth. Because the concept was that the biblical message is true fundamentally. Whether you receive it or don't receive it, it's true. Whether you like it or don't like it, it's true. Whether it seems to help you or not help you, it's true. It's true because it's true. It corresponds to reality. Now, verse 143. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delights. The righteousness of your, ever, of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. Now, I think we should be very refreshed by this somewhat depressing section of Psalm 119. Have you noticed there's a little bit of a tone difference here in this section, right? Many of the sections of Psalm 119 are triumphant. They're exciting. They're shouting hallelujah, so to speak. This one, this one is recognizing the real difficulties of life. You don't get any more real than verse 143. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me. Yet your commandments are my delight. You see, despite the difficulties of this life, the psalmist still found delight in God's word. His appreciation of God and his word was not only valid in good times, but also in trouble and anguish. And isn't that a great measure for every one of our faiths? Do you have just a fair weather faith? Or do you have one that can survive and even thrive in seasons of trouble and anguish? James Montgomery Boyce, in his wonderful commentary on Psalms, he says that years ago there were Christians who used to put the promises of God to the test. And when they had received what was promised, they would write this in the margin of their Bible next to a promise of God. They would put the letter T and they would put the letter P. T stood for tested, P stood for proven. And that's the experience of believers, right? 
He said, listen, I've been in trouble and anguish, and I've seen the comfort and the power that your word brings to me. He concludes it again, as we just read, verse 144. The righteousness of your, ever, of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding, and I shall live. You see, we might think that what the psalmist really needed to live was deliverance from his trouble and anguish. What, what he found was that his understanding of God's word was even more important. I think of this. I think of this as I look out on your faces on an evening like this. and I think, you know, there, there is undoubtedly a, a lot of sorrow in this room. There's undoubtedly a lot of trials, and some of them prolonged in your lives. There is, in the words of verse 143, there's a lot of trouble and anguish in this room. And I pray that God would relieve you from your trouble and anguish. I pray that God would make your life easier and better. Just like anybody would wish that for themselves, I wish it for you. But I will tell you this, that there is something even more precious you can have in your life than deliverance from your present season of trouble and anguish. That thing that's even more precious than that deliverance is you can have understanding from God and his word that would give you life. That's what the psalmist longed for. And one reason he found this to be true was that he understood that the righteousness of God's word is everlasting. He knew the eternal character of the word of God and it made that word all the more relevant, all the more important to him. That's what God wants for you as well. I don't say that to say, well, forget about your trouble and anguish. It's not important. God doesn't really care. No, he cares very deeply about it. And I believe he hurts right along with you through it. But there's a gift that he wants to give you in the midst of it. That great gift of understanding him and understanding his word. Father, that's our prayer tonight that we would receive that. I think of that, Lord, those among us, they're they're going through it. And maybe, Lord, they've been going through it for a long time. Lord God, won't you bring your comfort The the, the comfort not of of necessarily eliminating every trial, Lord, but giving great grace, great understanding through it. We believe, Jesus, that when you finish your great work on the cross, that you ascended into heaven, and now you give gifts unto men. You pour out the bounty of your grace and your goodness upon your people. Well, that's what we need right now, Lord. So remembering who you are, remembering what you did on the cross... We put our focus now on you. We worship you together here this evening, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.